Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Festival Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast The Edge of Europe from our 2018 programme. Border, a journey to the edge of Europe by New Zealand expat Bulgarian Kapka Kasabova is described by the LA Review of Books as that rarest of things, a travel book with a conscience that is also a compendium of wonders. It won the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year and the Scottish Book of the Year and was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Bailey Gifford Nonfiction Award. An accomplished writer of non-fiction, fiction and poetry, Kasabova explores the borderlands of Bulgaria, Turkey and Greece, a region shaped by the forces of history, and in so doing has produced a meditation on the intersection between countries, cultures, others and ourselves. She's in discussion with Lloyd-Jones in a session supported by Platinum patrons Mary Biggs and Peter Biggs. We hope you enjoy listening. We just had a fascinating conversation out in the courtyard in the sunshine. I hope we can replicate it. I'm a bit exhausted. but um, Well, the first thing to say really is um, Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe. It's an absolutely wonderful book, Kafka. It's uh, beautifully written. Um, it's an exercise in excavation and retrieval retrieval of a world or worlds that have passed and have faded from modern maps. We encounter local mythologies, some alive and well and others forgotten. They're often magical and always enchanting. To some extent, Kapta's book remakes the territory she journeys through. Although, above all, it offers a, a thorough investigation of the concept of border, a peeling back of place and self. The end result, I think, is not arrival at a hard and fast place, but an assembly of places loosely connected in the mind that in this instance I'm quite content to call Casabova land. Uh, I suppose um, we should start with some biographical notes because it's particularly relevant. Uh, Kapka was born and raised in Bulgaria um, after the rollback of the, the, the Soviet bloc. Kapka's family moved to England and by that route arrived in New Zealand in Dunedin where Kapka's father took on a, an academic position. And I think we probably met sometime in the 90s in Wellington. And, um, and I can recall um, I had to go to Sydney, a nephew of mine was marrying a, a young Macedonian woman. And it was either my idea or your idea that I should give a speech in Macedonian. <laughs> I'm much older and wiser now. <laughs> uh, uh, but Kaka assured me that you may even said a man of my towering intellect would have no trouble. Um, and she sent me through a fax. Anyway, the moment came to deliver my speech and there was a quality of silence. Um, I recognised <laughs> this isn't going terribly well. And about halfway through I, I summoned the courage to look up and there were looks of bewilderment and bafflement and some fierce looking men stabbing their meat with forks and uh, and some sympathetic looks amongst them um, you know um, some people obviously assumed the, the village idiot had wandered into the hall and taken over the microphone so this is just to say I have no intention of putting you where you inadvertently put me <laughs> um, look from the outset, when, when Kapka arrived in, in, in Wellington and began publishing, it was very, very obvious that he was a, a special and precocious talent. Um, you know, English is not 
Kapka's first language, not a second or a third. You know, she, she spoke Bulgarian, uh, Russian, of course, and French, and, um, and English. Um, but there she was reading and writing poems and fiction in English. Um, so I thought, just to start our conversation off, and just because New Zealand is one of the places that make up Kapka, that you might read a poem that you wrote in those days from All Roads Lead to the Sea, uh, the Roxborough one. Mm. Thank you, Lloyd. It is, it's great to be here, Kia ora. Uh, and it's an especial honour to be in conversation with Lloyd Jones, who I uh, believe to be one of the greatest living writers in the English language. Oh. And Lloyd, <laughs> I haven't told you this. The first but... half of the sentence was okay, but you <laughs> I have not told you this, but uh, I, I need to say, I, I've had a literary crush on you since the early 90s, since I arrived in New Zealand. Oh, you know, only a literary and, uh, one, huh? And uh, <laughs> can I just say, for those of you who haven't read The Cage yet, oh. uh, that you must. Uh, <laughs> yeah, enough of that, you can't do that. <laughs> Thank you very much for this um, Overly generous introduction, Lloyd. Um, this, this poem is a very old friend or, or possibly an enemy. It's um, 25 years old now. Um, and it's, um, it, it's um, from my time in the South Island in Dunedin, the road to Roxburgh. All roads lead to the sea, says the driver, and then talks to a passenger about living in Roxburgh, about the weather, taxis, and his teenage daughter who studies home science and has a boyfriend mechanic. Meanwhile, the bus cuts through landscapes frozen in the mind, in the wind, landscapes frozen in the wind. They are the memories of buses cutting through the lonely landscapes of the mind in some other country, in some other life with someone else sitting in the next seat, someone who had the same graceful abandon while sleeping through empty towns called Roxburgh, all turned to the sea and seeing nothing but themselves through vast, imperceptible reflections of the sky and shadows broken against the hills, through the same wind whistling false memories, laughing at our faces, saying in the driver's voice, all roads lead to the sea. Thank you, Kapka. Thank you. Well, when I, when I read this uh, poem, one line that struck me was memory of the buses cutting through lonely places of the mind. And, and in a way, it's, it's interesting how one place will suggest another place. And, and I thought also how it almost foreshadowed uh, the writing of Border, which has happened decades later. But the, the point I really wanted to, to raise was, um, you know, when you first arrived in New Zealand, what do you, what do you encounter? Not so much a border, but boundary. Uh, we're surrounded by sea, um, and our our boundaries are sort of naturally imposed, physical sort of boundaries. Do you want to sort of reflect on the the difference between boundary and border? I think this. I learned this since writing border, but apparently there is a discipline, an academic subject, border studies. Really. Um, yeah. I haven't looked into it, yeah. but I think, you know, people study borders and boundaries and um, borderlands and frontiers. And uh, there must be a, a, a kind of um, 
an official definition of each of these, but certainly I think as a European coming to New Zealand, the shock of the ocean is, or at least was for me, um, the, the, the most lasting kind of, um, the most lasting shock, the most lasting impression. As a European, you so, um, I suppose you internalize borders, land borders. I think all, Euro we, all Europeans do. Um, you take borders for granted, um, even deadly ones, like the one of, of, of my book. And even though you don't necessarily love them, you may in fact hate them, they create a sense of homeliness almost, this delineation of what is your, what is your homeland or what is your familiar territory, which doesn't really exist on an island. So I felt, and I guess that's what my first poetry book was about, this sort of wrestling with this sense of excessive freedom almost, excessive, um, excessive space. Mm. Yes, I, I would have thought that uh, the notion of boundary is something that sits within our experience of childhood. There's a sense of boundaries imposed by our parents. You know, you can go to the end of the street but not beyond. Uh, you can swim in the river but not across the river. Um, are the kind of pointers of a, of a, a map of childhood. And it occurred to me um, that when you and your family went for your holidays in the Red Riviera, um, does that sound okay, by the way? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, that you were still sort of locked in within the world of the child. There was the boundary of the sea. But suddenly um, you become aware of border and the notion of border that's just locked behind this area called Strandia. Strandia. Do you want to share some thoughts about that, that transition from... I mean, it must have been a, a shock in a wee way. Um, and you, you're seeing all these people. It was considered a soft border, wasn't it, for people wanting to get through to the West that would make their way through this territory? It but, was considered, yeah. Uh, so we're talking about the border between Bulgaria and Turkey, mm. which begins as a maritime border. Mm. Perhaps if we could have the first image up, that would be great. The, the map. Ah. Yeah, so it starts on the Black Sea as a maritime border and sort of goes inland. And that, that line, that barbed line you see, the darker line, that was effectively the Iron Curtain. It's, you know, it's where the Iron Curtain stopped being a metaphor and became a, uh, a physical place. And those beaches, both on the Turkish side and on, on our side, on the Bulgarian side, were, were sort of within 30 kilometers, 20 mm. kilometers of the, of the actual border. So it, it was considered a kind of green border. Mm. In other words, safer and friendlier to cross within the Soviet bloc than, say, the Berlin Wall, mm. which was obviously uncrossable, yeah. Yeah. which but is why... Mm. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, but there was an interesting sort of population, a constituency that, at that seaside, wasn't there? <laughs> That's so nicely put, a constituency. Um, yeah, well, in I guess... terms of spies, in terms of people who were obviously making their way to that border, the sandals? The sandals was the, yeah, I, I found this out only now, I didn't know it at the time, but the sandals was the locals um, sort of... Um, way of referring to those East Germans and other East Europeans, Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians, um, people from all over the Soviet bloc, really, who had come to the Bulgarian seaside ostensibly on holiday, 
to the Red Riviera, but some of them had actually planned their escape across the so-called green border, that barbed line, which was green in the sense that it, it sort of cuts through a wilderness. It's, mm. it's a forested uh, mountainous area, the Stranger Range. Mm. Um, but it wasn't friendly in any way. Um, that was a myth. Um, mm. And that is how many young people lost their lives trying to cross that border. Well, it was a, a, a sort of a Turkish sheep, really, wasn't it? Because the guards were lying in wait. They knew what was going to happen. Also occurred to me that um, the forest, what does the forest mean in, in European mythology? You know, you think of the Grimm's fairy tales and things. They're, they're set in a place that you can see the outside of, but you can't see the inside of, which is a forest. Um, the forest, yeah, then it's, it's obviously a very sort of, potently metaphorical place uh yeah mm. in in the mm. um and you, i guess that's what um gave me the idea of writing the book was visiting that forest mm. uh, one summer and um, going to a border village with a friend to witness what is probably quite an ancient certainly very old fire walking ritual um still surviving in bulgaria and um, northern greece um probably linked with Dionysian cults um, in, the, in, in antiquity. And we went to this border village, and it's in the middle of this no-man's forest. And um, I've always been drawn to forests. I grew up with, yeah, forested mountains. And I really felt there was something, apart from all the weird things going on, like fire walking and these depopulated border villages, there was definitely a, 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 a something else going on in the forest, what felt like an ancient energy. I can only describe it in Gothic terms because it's a Gothic kind of place. Um, yes, yes. Well, when I was reading the book, and I mentioned this earlier outside, I, I thought, well, you know, as writers, we have one or two books that we're, we're meant to write. Uh, we write other books, but there are some essential books. And this is an essential book and, uh, and almost inevitable that you were going to write this book. And I was curious actually what was the moment. You mentioned just now um, the fire walking thing. Um, but it's interesting how it takes time for a book just to declare itself. Um, did you have a little epiphany or, or was it some sort of political moment or just some willing up from within that, right, I'm going to do this book? I guess I've always been, in a way, obsessed with borders and having grown up behind a very hard border, that, that was mm. the Iron Curtain. I've always um, been intrigued by what borders are really for and um, this kind of injustice, the inherent injustice of a hard border, which I very much felt as a kid. Mm. Why, can why are all these people free to come to us, but we can't go to them. And what is this border really? What and whom is it really stopping? So I've always been sensitive uh, to the issue of borders. Um, and I have been to the border zone over the years, sort of drawn to this, in a way, magnetic place, really. But um, in 2013, uh, I visited this border village, and I felt the moment had come. In fact, I suddenly had a sense of um, urgency. That time was passing, a whole generation has already passed since mm. the Iron Curtain came down. Uh, people are forgetting, and those who remember are getting old. Um, and I just um, felt, even though the subject 
seem daunting and enormous and, and almost beyond me on every level. I felt I had to tackle it. I had to, I had to attempt at least. I had to explore the border zone. I had to see what, what I could collect in the way of stories and memories. And, um, and I guess I was driven by a kind of attraction and a kind of anger. It's, you know, I think early childhood experiences those boundaries that you mentioned. Mm, it's, you know, yeah, it's almost returning to the, the trauma, or the political trauma of your, your childhood. But I, I had a sense that um, when you went to the forest, it was a bit like entering a, a hidden garden and pushing, through, pushing on a wall and passing through that, but finding another wall. And at a certain point through the book, at, uh, into the book, I completely lost all sense of where I was. Countries melted away. But... I was in a place of borders, and they were manifested in all sorts of different ways. Did you find yourself sort of becoming more enmeshed in boundary and border as you as you went on? That's so beautifully put. That's exactly the that was the sensation of going through some kind of gateway in this forest, in this border zone. It's a very beautiful place, but it's also very dark, and uh, and there are the ruins of the Iron Curtain everywhere. The ruins of a civilization, really, the ruins of the Soviet civilization. The whole industry, the whole infrastructure that went with the border is still there. These abandoned border barracks, yeah. um, completely claimed by nature and um, infested with snakes. And well, you've got a photograph, I think, of what it looks like now. I do. Thank before you. Before and after. Thank you for reminding me. This is this is a photo from the mid '80s, um, and this is how the the Iron Curtain um, uh, was in these two young army recruits with a dog had simply, um, it had fallen to them to serve in the border army. They hadn't necessarily chosen it. And they would have been under instructions to shoot at anyone trying to cross. Um, and often they did. And this is the same stretch of the fence, still standing. This is from about three years ago, this photo, reclaimed by nature, as you can see. Who's the person? Still there. Is that you? That's me, oh. um, and uh, you look different in Bulgaria. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was hot, okay. Mm. But yeah, this uh, this this sensation really of, and I think even a casual visitor to the Stranger uh, ranges to this border zone can pick it up because I have spoken to people, to British travellers and others, without without my childhood, without my history. You can pick up these these sort of uh, these energies as if you're going through some kind of gateway into another dimension. It's a wonderful place. It, it's a hellish place in many ways, but it's a wonderful place for a writer. Mm -hmm. And I just felt with my writer's instinct, yeah. you know, that there was gold there, mm -hmm. and I wanted to. But it took narrative you, gold. Took you back to into. In fact, you write very beautifully about it somewhere. Um, Oh, yes, here we go. I was very persuaded by this. Um, you, you talked about when you were waiting to, to immigrate, um, uh, presumably just before the family went to, went to England, and you, you say, and I suppose this is, you capture the state of what it was like for these people who were trying to get across this border in your childhood, but you write of your own circumstances here. You say, the sensation of being invisible, unwanted, speechless, a disembodied soul waiting in one of history's drafty corridors. <laughs> it's rather, rather gorgeous. And it seems to me that's a piece of language that 
Oh, there we are. I thought the wall was there. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 you know, you could append to, to the, the whole language of border and, and so on, you know. Um, the border is a corridor, absolutely. Mm. In fact, um, I was, incidentally, that, that bit um, there, that, sort of that flashback to what it felt like for us to be crossing the Pacific from the Balkans to New Zealand was triggered by an encounter I had, and it's one of the chapters in the book with a with an Iraqi Kurdish family in a border town on mm. the Bulgarian side. So they had successfully crossed from they had travelled all the way from Iraqi Kurdistan just as ISIS invaded mm. their home region, and um, in 2013 they had made it to Turkey and crossed the border with fake British passports, mm. and they had been caught. This was a family of um, with eight children, um, and uh, among all the welcoming people of the border, they were paradoxically these people who were in a, they were they are in a it, it, still they are in a no man's land. They can neither go back nor move forwards. They are in a kind of bureaucratic um, hell, really, mm. in this waiting room of the border. Um, you were very impressed by those people, I think, their, their dignity and so on. Actually, that, that reminds me of um, when you're talking about the dilemma of the refugee and the migrant, um, and you were travelling in the footsteps of, is it Salibi? Salibi? Salibi. And you say his party, his party comes to a great river, but it was not frozen over, nor were there any boats. We were overcome with a grieving sensation, difficult to describe, that kind of stasis that you know, um, refugees arrive at. They can't go back. They can't go forward. They're in some sort of holding condition, which must be unbearable, I think. Unbearable. And it lasts sometimes mm. for years and years. Mm. And you have a wonderful um, phrase in the cage. Uh, you described <laughs> the two I'm, strangers. We had a long conversation about this, how you're not allowed to do this. <laughs> well, I don't care, but because it's a beautiful <laughs> phrase. <laughs> The strangers who come to this little community had run out of road. And that, I mean, that captures the, the refugee condition or the asylum seekers condition, you know, to have run out of road before you have arrived at your destination is, anyway, is a particular um, kind of hell. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, that's absolutely right. Yep. But can I just finish and say about this extraordinary family that the quality, the, the human quality you know, comes through in these uh, totally sort of dehumanizing conditions, you know, that they were in. They actually, I went to their rented flat in this border town in Bulgaria just to talk to them, to get their story. Actually, one of their sons said to me, what, you're writing a book? I don't need your book. You know, I need a passport. I need mm. a visa. Mm. Mm. And I apologized to him mm. because my book felt um, like some kind of unnecessary luxury. I think one of context. them said, you're having an adventure, but it's not an adventure for us. Um, and you can always leave. But that's, that is the, the thing, that dilemma or paradox of, of a writer traveling through this sort of territory. You have somewhere else to go. Um, and these people were stuck. Actually, I, I, I just... Uh, hark back to the refugees in Kaleti Station in Budapest, which there were many, many journalists, and, um, and I used to be one of those, and I was quite off-put by the predatory nature of the cameras and, and 
and it was like circling hawks and every now and then one would drop in and, and be smiling and, and solicitous and trying to get the story of those particular people. Um, it felt slightly corrupt actually as, a, as far as a transaction goes. Yeah. And it's so easy to imagine yourself as one of the people on, mm. on, the, on the unfortunate side. Yes, it, yes. it is so, it, this could be us tomorrow. <laughs> this could be us. Mm, mm. You know, things change quickly and traveling along this border really brought this home to me that on some level I already knew it, but it, you know, if you go there, you will see that the corridors of history never stop being trodden, and especially the corridors of migration across this border yes. have always been the same. It's just that the direction of travel has changed. And um, at one point you are on this side, you know, a generation later, you may find yourself on the other side. And you have another brilliant line in the cage, which goes, <laughs> when they erect this cage for mm. the two strangers because they don't know how to deal with their grief, really, mm. Mm. Uh, because they serve as a mirror to their own grief, which is exactly what you find in the border zone. The locals are almost afraid of looking at the refugees for fear of really seeing themselves and their own pain. Mm. And so a lot of people um, are, as you say, indifferent or make themselves indifferent. Mm. Uh, but you say... Um, uh, you say now, look, there was a wire fence around us and I could not decide if we were inside it or outside. Mm. I mean, that sums up the border mm. condition. Mm. I didn't quite catch that, but, um, but what I wanted to say, what you've just mentioned before, just the brittleness of the world um, and borders. Uh, you know, that first image, it, it just looked like it was going to be there forever, didn't it? It, it just had a sense of eternal gloom about it. And then suddenly it's, it's converted into almost a pastoral sort of thing. And what, what struck me about uh, Europe um, was how brittle its sense of self was. Um, the European Union, Union I'm talking about now. The most defenseless people in the world, people without homes swarming across borders, almost brought down the European Union, which would have been a laughable notion, wouldn't it? Just how brittle that sense of union is, which after all is also a border, an artificial one in some sense, but it almost couldn't withstand um, the, I was going to use the word trespass, I don't really like that word, but I suppose it is, the trespass of other into their territory, just how threatening they found that, and how border kind of, um, it supports and protects a lot of our more unworthy sort of aspects, our nationalism, our, our flags, our chest thumping and, and all that sort of thing. It, yes, that it, it seems to mm. support and protect aspects of our collective identity, but I think another irony of the border is that it doesn't support or protect anything or anybody, actually. The more, the more, the harder a border is, I think, the more in danger everybody is. And the border of my book kind of proves that, really. When I talk to communities in the border zone, they were the ones at greatest danger from their own side, not from, not from the enemy side, not from the other side, so, but from, from this kind of, from this culture of paranoia and constant surveillance that a hard border creates for its own side. Yes, that's, that's the glue, the, isn't it? That paranoia, you know, you take away the threat and what happens 
you know, sort of sense of self implodes. Yeah. The implosion, the threat becomes mm. internalized. Mm. That's mm. why I don't think, you know, these new fences that have gone up, just, just when you traveled there to Hungary, you know, Hungary was building a, bo a new fence with Serbia because that was the route, the land route That's that right. uh, refugees were following. Mm. Greece, I think, got there first. Greece built a big shiny fence with Turkey. Mm because that's one of the main routes. And then Bulgaria built a big shiny fence with Turkey in some of the same places where the Iron Curtain ran. So history repeats itself mm. quite literally mm. um, if you don't watch out. And, and yes, I think in a border culture, the worst of, of ourselves comes out. Yes, uh, something yes. that is... I think brilliantly captured at the psychological level in the cage because what they create is a hard border. Right. With this well, cage. I think we're seeing that in America too a little bit, aren't we? With, with um, you know, the clamour to build a, a wall. Uh, what's that all about? You know, it's a paranoia, um, and it's a form of domestic control. You know. It's um, also a mirror. I, I think a border mm. is a mirror that mm. um, that we hold up to ourselves, where mm. we can see our various distortions. Um. Can I, can we, look, many of us I think would be interested to know how you go about making this book, constructing this book. And I'm picking that actually, I mean, it reads as if there's one continual journey, but I'm, I'm picking that there are many journeys and, you know, you, you're, you're arriving at different places over a course of time. Do you want to talk about how things get stitched together and no, well, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's actually it looks like a small a small place on the map, but it's actually quite a, quite a vast area. So I guess one of the daunting aspects was how am I going to do this logistically? Um, it's it's two major mountain ranges that I wanted to 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 cross and um, and spend time in, and one sort of plain, the Thracian plain, and these are very very distinct realms. They each have their own, I suppose, folkloric culture, their own ancient history, their medieval history. So uh, whereas Stranja, the Turkish-Bulgarian mountain range that straddles the border, um, is a kind of med has a Mediterranean climate and some ancient Thracian tombs still um, to be excavated. So there's an ancient connection there. In the Rhodopi ranges across Bulgaria and Greece, there is this medieval history and a very interesting Islamic um, Islamic history where those ranges were heavily Islamized during the Ottoman Empire. And so Muslim communities, indigenous Muslim communities that have been there for centuries still uh, still exist in these in these border areas on, on both the Greek and the Bulgarian side. And they are kind of, they don't have an official place in national history because in the Balkans, national histories tend to be um, severely cleansed, mm. you know, of undesirable elements. And I was interested precisely in those elements, in the um, unofficial histories. Um, and there are e extraordinary, I found extraordinary stories among these, what you would call ordinary people, but really they live in, in an extraordinary place. And they have over time been placed in extraordinary circumstances of great pressure, the pressure of the border, but also in the case, case of the Muslims, the pressure of a, of a dominant um, and often oppressive culture. Um, so the journey <laughs> had to be in several parts. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's very much, um, 
very speculative, isn't it, when you set off on a journey? Because you don't really know where you're going to end up. You don't know what you're going to discover. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, and the wonderful thing about the book, of course, is the whole the psychology of, of border and all its different manifestations that slowly opens up as we proceed through the book. But of course, your actual journey, the actual one you make as a writer, not the written one, can be a different thing altogether. Um, I imagine there were lots of, you know, dead ends and, oh God, this isn't going terribly well. Or, do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, I guess really the, the the big question when you're kind of writing non-fiction, which this is, um, is what what are you going to put in and what are you going to leave out? Mm. And yes, I I very I was very much aware of the multiplicity the of of the border zone, so I knew that the book would have to somehow reflect this kind of multiple quality, this labyrinthine quality almost of the border zone. And the, the, the multi-layered, this kind of excavatory nature of, of these regions, um, the excavatory nature of my journey, um, sort of going back to antiquity, but focusing on the 20th century, really, and yet being unable to ignore the Middle Ages with yes. the, these Islamic currents, and all of mm. that somehow had to be incorporated effortlessly mm. um, in, in, um, in a into a certain form and actually it was one of these almost magical experiences both the journey and the writing of the book where the form the material found its form effortlessly it just took the form it had to take mm. when we were chatting beforehand this morning you 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 mentioned you said um you know you have an instinctive approach often to your work rather than a mm. That's very much what happened here. A feeling towards, a groping towards something in the dark. Groping yeah. towards something almost in the dark. You, you feel you're in the dark. You've written books before, but mm. it almost doesn't matter because yes. you start, you're a beginner all over again. And yes, but I did feel it was, it was almost um, at times, and I mean this as a, as a very um, good thing, um, laudable thing, like you were conducting some psychoanalysis on yourself, that there was this thing inside of you that you were also excavating a kind of a psychology that had to do with border, that this thing, although you had left as a, as a young child, you had none, nonetheless this, this, this thing that hadn't been kind of properly uh, examined in yourself. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, and I think oh. when you go to a border zone, you confront certain things about yourself because the border is a mirror, mm -hmm. because... Um, because it's full of resonances, of secrets. Uh, you know, there's a forest on the Greek-Bulgarian border, which is, which is where I went with a former people smuggler, actually, from a Muslim village. And we spent a few days together, and things didn't end so well. But it was, um, it was a very... He, he's a fantastic um, person. He is the border. He is the human embodiment of this border. He's almost an archetypal... Uh, character really mm. um, a kind of messenger and a trickster and a and a smuggler quite mm. literally but I went to a forest on that border where many of the trees are initialed in Greek and in Slavic um, and the initials date from different historic moments you know going back to World War II and before that and the Greek Civil War and during the Cold War and even from the 90s 
when Bulgarians were crossing illegally into the EU, uh, then the EU, Greece, uh, looking for jobs. And I met such a woman, one such woman, mm. who had walked for seven days trying to cross that border, and that was her fifth attempt. Um, you know, an, a kind of epic horror story, really. Um, so you end up confronting these things in yourself. Um, and I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to experience the border, not just to observe and record the border. Mm. And actually, it was impossible not to experience it at all these different levels, at the horror level, at the um, um, enchantment level. Mm. Um, but it, it sort of reaches um, a kind of a, a boiling point in, inside of you too. Uh, uh, you know, this paranoia of the border. Um, kind of bubbles over at a certain point when you accept a lift with a man in a red tracksuit uh, in, in a BMW and you're dr driving up this hell road to the place of no return. I actually thought that might be quite a fun thing to read, but I think you've got something else. But first of all, can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, that was the smuggler. Oh. And he's he's actually a very friendly, a very friendly oh, guy. But um, yeah. But you didn't think so. You were, but you... after a while, I didn't think so because yeah. the, the, I suppose the, uh, this, this accumulated the charge of the border zone, and the fact that it's so depopulated. I mean, this is, this is a fertile area that has been emptied, that has been decimated by the border culture, so that villages will be down to ten people. So it's really these phantom villages deep in the forest, uh, where anything could happen, and and it did. Mm -hmm. um, and after a certain time in, in this environment, I began to develop, uh, yeah, a kind of anxiety and a paranoia um, because I'm not a border person. I was an outsider. But it was interesting because you, you arrive in this place and you flee. And in a way, that flight thing, the opportunity to escape is not unlike the sandals that perhaps they would have experienced going through the stranger all those years ago in your childhood. You almost were having their experience. Yeah, I think on mm. some level I was mm. I was plugging myself into the into the memory of the land, into the collective unconscious of mm. that region, and you can you can become sensitized to a place in, in in that way. And I think I wanted to. You think you deliberately set out to put yourself in a potential danger there? Not deliberately, but the unconscious mm. mind is a funny thing, mm. isn't it? Mm. Mm. So on some level. I obviously wanted to survive, but on some level, I also wanted, I was almost prepared to pay any price to get the story of the border. Hmm. And yet, the book is not about that. The book is about the many voices of the border itself. It's not about um, know, my adventures. It's an notion, isn't it? Giving voice to something that we think of as an animal. We think of border as something concrete, but it's also a state of mind, of course. So that's what you mean by giving voice to it. Absolutely, yeah. a state mm. of mind. Mm. Mm. The worst borders seem to be those in our minds. We're good at that. We're very good at erecting borders around ourselves. Yeah. Well, how mm. about um, a reading? Shall I read a little bit? Mm -hmm. uh, oops. <coughs> this is... Um, an encounter with two border guards. I was particularly interested in meeting people um, of the border who 
Well, I suppose with an extreme place and a kind of concentrated um, um, periphery, like a border zone, you get these archetypes almost. So there is the, the border trespasser, there is the border defender, there is the smuggler. What's the Balkan, the Balkan transhuman shepherd? Uh, shepherd? Ah, the trans, uh, transhumans, transhumans. Mm. Well, it was, um, it doesn't survive anymore. In fact, the border killed it. But it's an ancient practice of um, seasonal shepherding, seasonal um, um, cattle raising in the Balkans. And which they was didn't practiced. observe the border. They would, the border didn't exist. The there border, well, the border. It went across the, the two different um, seasonal regions, you know, the Aegean, which is now northern Greece, and the, and the Balkans proper to the north. And it put an end to, the, uh, to this free movement of, of, of people and livestock, an ancient tradition um, that was, yeah, killed by the border. Okay, what page are you going to read? Because I'm going to read with you. Uh, I want to, um, yeah, just introduce you to these two guys. They are border guards, um, page 18-2. And this, this is called 120 Sins. Along the broken forest road between the Black Sea and the Turkish border, the car radio flickered between stations. Syrupy Turkish pop ballads gave way to the summer edition of the local radio, which served the news in Bulgarian, English, and Russian. The odd village plunged out of sight as soon as you glimpsed it. The only thing on the road was the occasional booth, marked Border Police. Inside the booth were two border guards. I pulled over. Nah, there's nothing to tell. It's a life like any other, shrugged the older guard. The shifts are long. There's no dogs anymore. Things have changed since the old days. Now it's not even army anymore, but police, said the younger one. He kept his arms crossed and appraised me with cagey eyes. I'm retiring, the older one said. I'm gonna fish all day. Do you know the spring of St. Marina? Things used to be quiet, said the young guard, but it's been busy since the Syrian war. St. Marina, protector of snakes, you go to her to heal yourself, said the old guard. All sorts come across now, said the young guard. Some are even armed. I remember the fugitives from the old days, said the old guard. Every single face. They ran the other way, south. We arrested so many. Two German guys in their twenties. I remember the night. We surrounded them, 80 of us with dogs and just two of them. Their trousers were in shreds from the wire. The searchlights were on them and they stood there. I'll never forget it because they looked defiant, even though their lives were over. I opened the passport, his girlfriend's photo. But what can you do? Fate. They'd signed their own sentence. Last week, we found the pregnant woman, said the young guard. Her husband had grenade wounds. Syrians. One guy, Klaus Hoffmann, said the old guard. 1986. I see him like it was yesterday. 45-year-old radiologist from East Germany. I remember spelling his name on that form. Handsome, smart. He deserved better. Some destroy their identity papers and give themselves up, said the young guard. Fate, said the old guard. Everybody who passed through the arrest room was recorded in those thick green books 
which have now gone missing for some reason. Anyway, I'm retiring next year. I'm going to take my memories with me. They're starving, exhausted. There's no point hiding, said the young guard. They give themselves up and we do the paperwork and uh, they end up in the refugee camp. The other week, he went on, two Palestinians popped up in the forest. Wouldn't talk for days. People crack up when they're given food, but those two had eaten plums and uh, weren't hungry. It was the cigarettes that did it. On the third day, they inhaled like hoovers and they broke down. The story came out. What was the story? He looked at me with mistrust, and I recognized him. Of course, he was the accordionist's son from the Sunday party in the village. How a uniform and a gun changes a man. Oh, I recognized you, he said, and his face didn't move. It's my job. The old guards started telling another story, but the young one interrupted. Let's run a check on you, shall we? He said and went inside the booth. We have this identity verifying system that can look you up. You can see how it works. Oh, leave it, said the old guard, embarrassed. But the young guard was new school, scrupulous. He picked up the radio phone. He gave my name to a woman at the other end, and as we waited in the sudden silence, an old chill crept in. The chill of being found out, hunted down, a searchlight shone on you, a border chill. The old guard wanted an audience. The young guard didn't. He had turned the tables on me. Then the calm female voice came back with my details, adding, no criminal convictions. That's you verified, said the young guard, and went off to nap in the forest hut behind the booth. One time, said the old guard, returning to his story, I went fishing in the river by St. Marina. I had a heavy heart, you know, the way you do sometimes. I slipped and fell in the river, ripped my hand and on a sharp rock, ripped it right into the palm, blood everywhere. What happens next? I wash my hand in the St. Marina Spring and the wound closes up. Bloody hell, like nothing's been there. But nobody believed me. That's nice, I said. Nice my foot, he said, because listen what happens next. I go back the following week and what do I see? A knot of snakes by my feet. Bloody hell. I took a stone and crushed their heads. Three snakes it was. You kill one viper, they say, and that's 40 sins taken care of. So that's 120 sins, I said. But here's the catch, he said. Saint Marina is the protector saint of snakes. You mustn't touch the snakes at her spring because they might be something else, you know. What devil got me to kill those snakes after the miracle with the hand? He undid the top button of his uniform. The tarmac was melting under our feet. When you visit, he said, keep away from the vipers, because one thing is sure by St. Marina, we sign our own sentences. And he reached out and pressed a packet of melting chocolate biscuits into my shoulder bag, suddenly keen to end our conversation. I couldn't get Klaus Hoffmann out of my head because of all the victims of the border I had heard about, he alone had been named by a border guard. When I contacted the expert on German fugitives, he did find the Klaus Hoffmann in his files, but several things didn't match. The Klaus Hoffmann of the files was younger and he wasn't a radiologist. The year was different too. 
After his arrest, he had spent several months in a Bulgarian jail, followed by a long sentence in the hospital section of Hohenschönhausen, Berlin's notorious Stasi prison. Most mismatched of all was the following detail. The Klaus Hoffmann in the files had been shot and beaten by the soldiers before they had entered his name in one of those green logbooks that had gone missing. Were there two Klaus Hoffmanns? Or was the remembered Klaus Hoffmann a fictionalized creation of my border guard, an amelioration of reality for everyone, Klaus Hoffmann, the guard, and me? I had waved to him as I drove away, and uh, the older guard had waved back, holding his arm up in the air longer than usual, a strangely final gesture. Perhaps he was afraid that if I stayed longer, he might get carried away and make a confession so awful, so intractable, that once it was uttered, it would become the only reality there is. And who would want to live in such a terrible world? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Um, did you, you know those thick green log books? Did you ever see any of those? You know, I wanted to, um, well, actually I tried to bribe that guide mm. because he, he hinted that he could find one, he could dig mm. one up, but then he kind of disappeared and that's the thing, his wife, I wanted to interview his wife, who her whole life, for 30 years, had been a cleaner in a border barracks, the border barracks where he worked, mm. and, I, and she didn't want to talk to me. And in right. the same way that he vanished after our conversation, yeah. he just became unavailable. He didn't pick up his phone. He sort of, yeah, kind of blanked me. I think it's, a, it's part of the border yeah. culture that there is still a sense of dread and it, it's not safe to talk too much. Or maybe shame even. Um, there's one sentence there that weighed on me. Um, and one of them says, but what can you do? Fate. They had signed their own sentences as if it somehow absolves them of any fault themselves or responsibility. That's right. It's um, a sentence, uh, just a couple of sentences or an attitude or sentiment that we've heard through history, of course, of people letting themselves off the hook. We were just following orders. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, look, let's consider your own status as a, as a writer and traveler in, in this region. Um, while you're looking to place yourself in, in this world, others are looking, trying to place you also. Uh, and they're perplexed because you're not a wife and you're not a mother. So what are you? <laughs> and from you're the, quoting from the book. I am. <laughs> yeah. That's something, yeah, something mm. that was said to me. Mm. Well, that was um, part of that syndrome of uh, what is a lone woman? doing traveling in the border zone, but also generally in remote places in the Balkans. It's still a conservative culture. Mm. Actually, I ended up every time I crossed the border, I crossed it multiple ways and across the three countries. And every single time, the receiving side, the side onto which I was crossing, searched my car with, with undue thoroughness. Yes. And, uh, and I was told that's because, I was told by someone, actually an entrepreneur who lives in a border town, he said that's because you're highly suspect. It's because um, you are the most likely 
um, you, you like you to carry drugs. Uh, right. So apparently yeah. the, the average drug mule on that border is a, is a Balkan woman of one nationality or another traveling oh, in a I rented see. car. I see. Yeah. <laughs> right, I just thought we'd run into an agenda border. Um, yeah. Well, As well, and yeah. that is part of the, the backwardness, I suppose, the, the backwardness of this region. Um, yeah. um, I'm going to slip in one more question before we go to the audience, and it's, it's just a technical question, really, and it's a, a sort of a writer's kind of question. At, at the back, uh, at the end of the book, you acknowledge you had the use of interpreters and, and, and so on along the way. And so, presumably, the interpreters were there in the moment, uh, with you in, in many of the situations you're describing. And then you, ha you have, and I haven't faced this myself, you have a problem of whether to admit them into the moment or leave them out. Was that a, a sort of an artistic uh, decision that you thought about or considered in any way? I mean, that is, that is what happens uh, mm. indeed. Uh, but it wasn't really a question here because the only translator that I... Um, that I used was in fact a friend mm. and he is in the whole last section and that's Nevzat in the Turkish last section of the book. Um, okay. He took me around. He's a person of the border. He grew up in a border village and um, he was my translator in Bulgarian and Turkish. He spoke both languages because he's the descendant of Balkan mm. refugees to Turkey. So his grandparents were not Turkish. Right. Um, Okay. Um, and, and there were no other trans I mean, there was, yeah, the, in Greece, mm. the mountain ranger spoke English, um, and she mm. is the goddess of the mountains. She's that chapter. And in Bulgaria, I, I just spoke Bulgarian. Um, okay. So I didn't have to write anybody out, fortunately. Right. Um, well, also, um, just, oh God, I'm going to slip this in. We're going to have to give a really quick answer. Um, often when we, we're on these journeys, we have a soulmate along with us, a book. And a, a couple of times I thought, perhaps perhaps you're reading Rizard Kapuzinski or, or Herodotus. Um, in fact, there are, you know, the way you have these little moments, these jeweled moments, these little uh, things you'd find along the way reminded me a little bit about Herodotus. Is, did you have any companion like that, any book companion? I guess uh, probably Evliya Celebi, who is um, one of the greatest, well, one of the great travel writers of the, um, of the late Middle Ages. He was a 16th century Ottoman traveler and socialite. Um, he's a Have you read his, yes. his work? He's not very well known, but he's fabulous. Yeah. He's great yeah. fun and he's slightly surreal. He's an unreliable narrator as he describes, you know, the Ottoman his Ottoman mm. travels, and he traveled in, 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 in that area. So he was, um, he was in a way, my companion from five mm. centuries back. Um, okay, I'm going to cut <laughs> you off. So, um, look, uh, are there any questions in the audience? There, there are a couple of roaming microphones in the, in the aisle and, and up the back as well. Um, don't be shy or be shy. Have you got a microphone? Yeah. 
It'll come on. Yeah, it's, it's on. It? Hi, Captain. Um, obviously, borders of the mind is um, a big thing in Europe at the moment with the you know, refugee thing, uh, and the the help of borders giving an identity has obviously led to purpose in uh, in uh, in Europe as well as national well as nationalism. Uh, I was very struck when Robert Kaplan, who's a travel writer, was talking about the Balkans, saying that. Um, he thought that, that they'd missed out on the Renaissance Reformation and the Enlightenment, and that's why they were a different part of Europe. Um, have you got any reflections on, you know, what could give a different identity of inclusion in the, going into the future? Because the EU doesn't seem to have done it. And uh, there's a big uh, debate in the UK at the moment about history, people not taking it uh, at school or university, and it's sort of being squeezed into a sort of uh, a side alley or being uh, put out for various other reasons of uh, economics, etc. So I'm just interested in your idea sort of in the future, what is a kind of identity of inclusion? Did you sort of reflect on that as you were going through your, your journeys? Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, well, it's a, it's a very rich question, but Robert Kaplan, I, I, um, uh, his Balkan Ghosts, which is unduly, unduly respected because I think he actually peddles some quite dangerous ideas um, about ancient hatreds, making the Balkans um, look, you know, doomed and, and, and hopeless. And actually there is no such thing as ancient hatreds in the Balkans. The hatreds are are relatively recent, and they are all stoked by um, by particular governments and particular politicians. So I think it's dangerous to kind of um, to um, retroactively uh, explain uh, what is much messier and much more um, um, actually much more much more interesting. But in terms of the Balkans, it, it did strike me. I mean, as I was setting out to write a book about borders or a border, a divisive thing, I ended up feeling um, an unexpected sense of connectedness with everyone I met. And, and I saw the many ways in which the people of the Southeast Balkans, which is where this is, are uh, interconnected uh, through time, through, through words, even, even something simple like Turkish words that are still um, in use throughout the Balkans. And I, I, I actually use some of those words in, in, in the book. They are kind of always related to cultural practices or food um, or universal things within Balkan culture, such as the Cheshma, the, the roadside drinking fountain that you find even in a remote place. And it did strike me, and that's why I ended up writing another book, the book I'm currently writing on, also on the Balkans, the, the, the Western Balkans. Um, it struck me that the Balkans are actually have a, they have always played this role of mostly unfortunate, but it can, it can be turned around by more visionary uh, and more sort of humane politicians, I think. They've, they've played the role of a, of, of a bridge, of a kind of gateway between two worlds. And it, it, when you're in the Balkans, you feel, I don't know if you felt this when you traveled to Albania, but you feel that you're simultaneously in the Middle East and in, in mm. Western Europe. Mm. And somehow these two realms um, live in relative harmony. Yes, um, indeed. Look, I've done a terrible job of time management. <laughs> uh, so let me just make a few concluding remarks, if you will allow me. And it's, one is simply to acknowledge the brilliance of this book. And others have traveled with a notebook and, and pen to produce masterpieces. And one thinks of Robert Byron and his successor, Bruce Chatwin, perhaps Colin uh, Thrubron. 
and notably Patrick Lee Firma. But I think Kapka's name can be added to that list. And I want to go out with a line that's at the start of this book. It's from a, a gypsy singer. And it begins this book, and it's simply this. People forget we're only guests on this earth, that we come to it naked and depart with empty hands. So can you please join me in um, saying thank you very much for your books and your conversation. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.